Philip Ryken shares this summary. In the year 1923, nine of the world's wealthiest men held a meeting at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. In attendance were the presidents of the world's largest steel, gas, and utility companies, the world's greatest wheat speculator, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, a member of the presidential cabinet, a Wall Street tycoon, the head of the world's largest monopoly, and the president of the Bank of International Settlements. The men who met at the Edgewater that day knew all the secrets of generating and manipulating capital. They could own anything and everything that money could buy. There was one more thing they held in common, which is that within the next decade, they all lost everything they had. J. Patrick Morley records their destiny. The president of the largest independent steel company, Charles Schwab, lived on borrowed money for the last five years of his life and died bankrupt. The president of the largest gas company, Howard Hobson, went insane. The president of the largest utility, Samuel Insel, died in a foreign land, penniless and a fugitive from justice. The greatest wheat speculator, Arthur Cotton, also died abroad and insolvent. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, was sent to the infamous Sing Sing prison. The member of the presidential cabinet, Albert Fall, was pardoned from prison so he could go home to die. The Wall Street tycoon, Jesse Livermore, committed suicide. The head of the world's largest monopoly, Ivan Kruger, committed suicide. The president of the Bank of International Settlements, Leon Fraser, committed suicide. There was still one more thing, end quote, that these tragic figures all seemed to experience. They had set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. What appears one way on earth for the moment has a far different value in heaven and in eternity. What is the difference? How do we handle the blessings God has given us? What should motivate us? What are the dangers that we must desperately try to avoid? Will immediate and temporary pleasure or distant eternal reward win your heart? Moses understood it right in Hebrews 11, chapter 24, Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 27. There we read, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he looked to the reward. But this character in Luke chapter 12 didn't have a clue. Luke 12 verse 16. Then Jesus spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will these things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask as we have this morning that you would examine us, that the word of God would pierce us as a two-edged sword and penetrate to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. 
for we know you know the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And there is nothing hidden in your sight, but all things are naked and open to you, to whom we must answer. Father, we, we ask that you would teach us this morning if some of these principles and truths are, are, are crucial for repentance and change or helpful in encouragement and affirmation or just reveal us to us things we'd never thought of. Please, Lord, change us from your word. You know how weak I am and my inabilities, but your spirit is not weak and unable. So I pray, Father, that through your word you would speak to us and you would lead us nearer to you. In your name we pray. Amen. How will you handle riches? The rich Christians have unique commands. So what are the characteristics of faith commanded of rich Christians? Verse 17 says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. First thing we see here is this is a command. This is not up for debate. This is not a suggestion. This is not up for discussion. There are no exceptions He gives a direct command. And essentially Timothy is commanded by Paul to command a specific portion of the people in his church. Is that appropriate? Is it appropriate for Paul to differentiate like this? Should a select group of people receive specific instructions from God that others don't? Is it right to discriminate? We do it all the time. While at the Union train station in Kansas City over the Christmas holiday, Sherry and I strolled through the elaborate Christmas display of thousands of colored lights, life-size singing animated animals. And they really caught my attention. My wife said, why are you watching that? But I thought it was interesting. (laughs) Sleigh ride photo ops, snow scenes, And in the heart of the extravaganza was a beautiful miniature train that offered five-minute rides for customers provided they met two requirements. First, that they could pay five bucks each. And secondly, that they were shorter than the 40-inch red mark on the wooden painted sign near the track. That was discrimination. I could have met the five-dollar requirement, but not the height limitation. Sometimes discrimination works the opposite way and you can't ride the roller coaster or the bumper cars unless you are taller than the 40-inch mark. I can order from a cheaper menu at IHOP than most of you can (laughs) because I am a senior citizen and I have found that there are many benefits to having an abundance of birthdays. (laughs) Nevertheless, it is discrimination. In my business experience, some of our distributors were given a significant bidding and tax advantage if they, owned, if they were owned by a specific gender or an ethnic group. Auto insurance for an 18-year-old is a lot higher than that for a 35-year-old woman. Discrimination. It's not necessarily bad. Sometimes it is evil. Sometimes it is hurtful. But sometimes it is necessary and helpful. By definition, discrimination simply differentiates based upon some characteristic. The Bible does this routinely. Scripture describes many unique roles having distinct responsibilities with exclusive commands. And I'm sure you can think of them. For example, husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Children, children, obey your parents. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters. The church leadership in Jerusalem actually discriminated between Gentiles and Jews. And you might think, well, that seems, seems odd. But in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem council, attendees such as Paul, Barnabas, James, and Peter, to name just a few of the leaders that were gathered, they had come to determine the best way to respond to the surprising and sudden growth of Gentile churches. Should they be expected to essentially become Jewish and follow Jewish customs after they become Christians? 
Or was there some other direction to give these new fresh followers of Christ? Their final decision, found in Acts chapter 15, beginning with 28, reads this way. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you, you Gentile Christians, no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. That's it in a nutshell. They didn't have to come under all the other requirements. It's discrimination. But it was specific. And in here, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19, Paul does something similar. He writes a command, and it's not to all the people at the church in Ephesus, but specifically, discriminately, to the rich. Who are the rich? Strong's definition is wealthy and abounding. Rich is derived from a word that means fullness. But I bet most of you do not feel comfortable to label yourselves as rich. Some commentators actually appeared to avoid defining rich with any real clarity. While I might not be able to define it, I can tell it when I see it, and I know it's not me. Some of you all might be thinking. But one concise, clear definition that I found was having discretionary income. In other words, when you have more than you need. When you have more than you need. You might be thinking, by the time I have paid the utilities, the taxes, the mortgage, the car payments, a few other grocery bills and those types of things, I, I only have what I need. But the truth of the matter, and, and I say this as I'm stepping on my own toes too, is that I live in a house far bigger than I absolutely need. As we lived in southeast San Diego, many of the families and, and people that we worked with and, and ministered to and, and were ministered by lived in shacks. There was a, a small two-bedroom apartment behind an old taco shop in inner city San Diego. And in that little home lived a family with seven children, a grandmother and an aunt and an uncle. And when their uncle's house burned down not too far away, they brought them in to live with them. I don't even remember. It was 16, 18, 20 people. In a, in a small apartment, much smaller than mine, than my house is. I have far more than I need. I eat more than needed just to stay alive. I keep the house above 60 degrees in the winter and below 80 degrees in the summer. Why? Because I can. And so can you. We have more than we need, which is not the case for many brothers and sisters in Christ that share this planet, this country, and even this city. With a careful look at the first two verses, 17 and 18, I want you to look at it now. How many times does the word rich or a form of it show up? Just in that first verse and a half. Anyone brave enough to... Right, four times. That's right. Twice as the noun rich, then again as richly... And then as riches, or an adjective and then riches as a noun. Four times. So it must be important to be repeated in some form that often. Not only because the word rich shows up repeatedly, but because it applies specifically to us living in the most affluent society the world has ever known. There has never been anything like this on this planet in the history of mankind. Our hot water broke. We have running water. We have hot water at the tap. We can change the temperature in here anytime we want to. We, we can sit in padded pews. We can come and go. And, and we have things that are far beyond our needs. We are so wealthy. We are so rich. But I want you to understand, Paul here does not criticize the rich in these particular verses. And that's not what I'm doing either. 
Earlier in this letter, in chapter 6, verse 9, he did. He gave strong warning, but it was to those who desire to be rich. Those who desire and pursue riches. It says they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. That do what? They plunge people into ruin and destruction. Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 24 through 25, He said, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And in Luke chapter 12, 20 through 21, God said to that rich fool, This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. But the difference in our verses this morning is that Paul is writing to brothers and sisters in the church who have by faith trusted in Christ and have been materially blessed by God. In the Old Testament, men like Job, Solomon, Abraham were very wealthy. In the New Testament, Lydia, Philemon, and Dorcas were too. They were wealthy. By God's providence, it is simply a fact that there are those in the church who are materially rich on earth and others are not. And scripture tells us repeatedly how this happens, where this wealth comes from. 1 Samuel 2 verse 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. 1 Chronicles 29, 12. Both riches and honor come from you. And you reign over all. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 19. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth. And given him power to eat of it. Receive his heritage. And rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. And in case someone wanted to spiritualize who Paul is talking about here. He makes it clear by adding when he says, Command those who are rich in this present age. He is not talking about those who are spiritually rich now or those who will be that way in heaven someday. He is giving a command to those materially rich at the very present time right in this world. So what does Paul command to the rich? Well, first of all, he says, Do not be haughty. Some of your translations read high-minded or don't be arrogant and conceited. Isn't this the natural pull of the flesh? Often those with wealth also have control. We can take pride in our accomplishments. We can be very self-impressed by what we have been able to put together or to pull off. And sadly, we are often lulled into a sense of self-sufficiency. I can get it done. With money, you can buy services, opportunities, and persuasion to get what you need. Sometimes that sounds like buying people off or a bribery. James gives this scenario from a church. Please turn with me to James chapter 2. James 2, beginning with verse 1 through 9. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Don't mix those. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, you sit here in a good place. And say to the poor man, you stand there. Or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Do we not have reverse glasses? We don't see it like God does. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, 
You do well, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. But the instruction of God is clear to every man. Romans 12, verse 3. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think of himself soberly. For God has granted to us a measure of faith. Romans 12, 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinions. Second command, do not trust in uncertain riches. One of our greatest temptations is to trust in things that are not trustworthy. They are uncertain, but they are attractive. At different times, Israel trusted in what? They trusted in foreign countries. They trusted in idols, in kings, in armies, in witches, in strategies, and traditions, rather than the living God, rather than Yahweh, their personal Savior, who had loved them and made covenant with them. He who was almighty, all-knowing, ever-present. And they trusted in the silliest things from our perspective looking at it, but do we not do the same thing? Isaiah chapter 31 depicts this for Israel. It says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. I and probably many of you have trusted in customers and leaders and friends my own meager abilities strategies insurance policies Bank accounts. And they all have failed or will fail at some point. We should know this. Proverbs 11.28 says, He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. Proverbs. Proverbs paints a very powerful word picture in chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. And I know when I read this, you've, you've heard this. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your li eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle to the heavens. That's a depiction of wealth. The ten wealthy men in my opening story painfully and tragically found this out. Hendrickson writes, Rich church members accordingly are warned not to get to the point where they will have rested the weight of their confidence on earthly treasures, on certain riches. But God, and that those are two, I think that's the two most exhilarating words in Scripture oftentimes, in doctrine. But God. But God is not like uncertain riches. He is absolutely certain. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9. Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Can you rest on that? A thousand generations? Psalm 20 verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we, and I hope that is us, we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Isaiah 26 4. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And James 1.17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. When we deal with God, we know who we deal with. So, do not be arrogant. Do not trust in uncertain riches. But rather, trust in God. Why? He tells us because He gives us richly all things to enjoy. And here's that word again. Richly. It, God gives richly, abundantly to His children. Psalm 23 verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. 
2 Corinthians 9 verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you. That you always having all sufficiency in all things. May have an abundance for every good work. It's like piling on top of each other. It's, this is greater and this and this and this. Philippians 4.18. Indeed I have all and abound. I am full. Having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you. A sweet smelling aroma. An acceptable sacrifice well pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs. According to his riches in Christ Jesus. Jesus said in John 10.10. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill and to destroy. And and I have shared that, that verse so many times on the street. And men walk in total beguilement by Satan, by the world, never to understand that. The thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, but I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. He's not trying to just get you by. This life is abundant in Christ. It is abundant, it is overflowing. And God also gives appropriately, thoughtfully, perfectly. This Christmas, Sherry and I came to realize that the pajamas we had so faithfully given to our grandchildren each year were not at the top of their gift list. In fact, they evidently were not experiencing a shortage of pajamas and were hoping that someday Grandma and Grandpa would come up with something a lot more fun and exciting. We did. The gifts were useful, but also enjoyable to them. But God, God never fails to give the wisest and most necessary, but also gifts that we can enjoy. Luke 11, verses 11 through 13 says, If a son asks for a bread from any father among you, will, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What, what a benevolent, generous, overflowing giver our Father is. Second Peter 1 verses 3 through 4. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Not, not just enough to give by all things. All things have been given to us for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. By which have we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is the world through lust important takeaways in these first three verses if you have more than your basic needs you are rich if you are rich it is a blessing from God and for the rich God gives three specific instructions do not be haughty do not trust in uncertain riches but trust in God who gives richly all things to enjoy. Truly godly faith then will produce fruits. So what are the fruits of this faith? This faith that's required of rich Christians. 18 says, let them do good that they may be rich in good works. Ready to give, willing to share. So do good for the purpose of being rich in good works. Rich appears again. We're to be rich in what? Good works. It's the word kalos ergon. Good, good in their essence, beautiful deeds, works for God. We're to be ready to give. That means to be generous, to be liberal, like God is. Luke 6, 38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. That is how our God gives. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians verse 8. And I ask you to do that because this is such a significant passage. And 
And this, if I had to, to say this, where's the center point of the purpose? This is it. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. That's our example. Dear friends, that's the gospel. We know from Philippians that, that the son did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and held tightly onto. But he, but he willingly gave that up. And he didn't come down with any pomp or circumstance that says he took the form of a slave. He was made in the likeness of men and when he was here he appeared as a man. He didn't look like any sort of a demigod or whatever it might be. He looked like a man when he was born. And he was obedient. Obedient to the point of death. Even the heinous, hideous, humiliating, excruciatingly painful death on the cross. That's the kind of giving God that we have. It's like so many of the things God calls us to when we look at who he is and, and how he fulfills those commands. We, we shrink back. So I, if we really look at it, I can never do that. I can never love my life, wife as Christ loved the church. But he calls me to and he will draw me to that and he will make us that. We can become givers like God. Never to the fullness, but we draw closer and we become more like him. The third thing is we're to be willing to share. This is a very special word. It's kononikos. Kononikos. And this comes from the Greek word for fellowship. Koinonia. Our giving is to be in fellowship. It's to be personal. It goes deeper. It's life on life. And I will say many of you exhibit this. It is one thing to write a check to take care of a need. Sometimes that is the best or all that we can do. This church and some of our people do that in support of medical needs, building rent, school expenses for children in Lebanon. In 2022, we also sent backpacks to Mexico and paid for a sorely needed minivan for distribution of gospel and food in war-torn Ukraine. But God calls a rich Christian to more. He is to be ready to literally share his life. His stuff, his time, his space. Share your life with those in need. Show hospitality. Give a ride. Fix a roof. Take them with you. Listen to their hearts. Give them biblical counsel. Give them time. Give them respect. Share your life. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 7. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. That's a minister's heart. So what does this fruit of faith produce for the rich Christian's future? Verse 19, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life, some of yours read life indeed or truly life. As a rich believer, as a rich believer, which we are, becomes rich in good deeds, gives generously, and shares his life with others, he is simultaneously investing in something, something that far surpasses the most secure and highest returning asset ever appearing on the New York Stock Exchange. It wouldn't even compare. By becoming rich in good works, a man is storing up. And it's also translated amassing a treasure. He is amassing a treasure in the form of a foundation or a fund for eternal life. The never fail surefire method, and that sounds like a salesman. The never fail surefire method for storing up a heavenly treasure is, and, and, and I have to admit, I have really little idea what that treasure will look like because I do not have the capacity to see the glories of heaven's riches but I know they are beyond my greatest imaginations ever 
Nothing will compare to them. But God's method for storing up a heavenly treasure for a good foundation in the future is to give away generously and share my life profusely. Your initial financial and emotional outlay may seem expensive. It will cost you time, money, and tears. But there is no imaginable limit to the value of this treasure. And there is no end to its duration. What an investment. You can't see the top of its wealth. And you can't see the end when it would ever stop. There's nothing like that. In his prayer in John 17, 3, Jesus describes this prize a rich man can lay hold of. The prize he gets by giving abundantly and sharing selflessly. He says, this is eternal life. It's the same two words used here in 1 Timothy 6, 19. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, when you obey these commands, you obtain what Paul cried out for in his letter to the Philippians, that I may know him. Paul says, that's what I desire, that I may know him. Jesus commanded in Matthew 6, 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As you serve in good work, give generously, and share abundantly, you are promised to live closer, deeper, in a more dependent fellowship with Jesus Christ. Let me just repeat that. As you serve in good work, give generously, and share abundantly, you are promised in these scriptures to live closer, deeper, in a more dependent fellowship with the creator of the universe, Jesus Christ. This is how God's kingdom works. You die, and God gives you life. You humble yourself, and He lifts you up. You generously give away earthly riches, and God richly gives eternal treasure. And then at this point, Paul closes his letter. It's interesting, he does not write a long, eloquent farewell he doesn't recall the names of his friends as he does in some of his letters. He doesn't provide an emotional affirmation. But because of the urgency of the looming danger, he repeats the same dire warning he sounded in the opening of this epistle. Verses 20 and 21 I've labeled as the bookend command to Christian leaders. Guard the gospel. Guard the gospel, Timothy. And avoid empty babble. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. The heart's desire of New Hope Bible Church is to fulfill this command given to Timothy. That is our, our strongest desire. People base their decisions on what church to attend on many things. The music. The nursery. The parking. The artistry. The length of the sermon. The charisma of the preacher. Or trouble. <laughs> the informality. Or the liturgy of the service. The comfort of the pew. The average age of the members. Or the friendliness of the people. At times we do well in many of these, but we fail in others. I'll leave that for you to assess. But one thing that the leaders, as well as many of the members of this church, desire and support more than any other, is that we remain committed to preaching the Word of God faithfully. As Timothy was commanded, we also must guard the gospel. Guarding means to watch over or keep watch over another's valuables. 
That's the word being used here. To watch over something valuable that belongs to another. The valuables entrusted to Timothy were the purity and faithfulness of the gospel. This included the entire word of God to that point, including this letter Paul had recently written to him. He is to guard this doctrine. But praise the Lord, and I think this is beautiful, what had been entrusted to Timothy to guard is really what Timothy has entrusted to guard God to guard for him. It's, it's awesome. We will read this in a few weeks. 2 Timothy 1 verses 10 through 12. Timothy has been told to guard this. Look what happens so in, in 2 Timothy. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things. But I am not ashamed. Why, you might ask. For I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. You see the reflex of that. We are told to guard what has been entrusted to us. But we know that we can trust it to be held. And we can have confidence. Because he is guarding the very things that we have entrusted to him. It is beautiful. The most dangerous threat to this treasure that Paul identifies here is profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. The New American Standard <clears throat> calls it worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. The ESV says irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. It is sometimes called unholy, heathenish, wicked, empty sounding. Meaning it is without substance. It fruitless discussion. These were the characteristics of the false teacher's message. These heretical and apostate teachers says they lived for argument. They loved, they loved to intellectualize simple biblical truth. Guthrie writes, the false teachers were claiming quite naturally that their teaching was the true knowledge, the gnosis. A characteristic certainly not confined to second century Gnosticism. End quote. Ultimately, though they sounded impressive, and Paul gives them that, he wrote that they actually had no idea what they were talking about. They claimed to have superior knowledge, but it was not in accordance with God's word, and their lives betrayed them. They were flagrant with hypocrisy. Now Paul reveals the seriousness of the threat of the false sophisticate teachers by opening this letter and closing it with almost identical warnings about them. Just for a quick refresher, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, where we began a few months back. Look at the similarities. Beginning with verse 2. Timothy, a true son in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things that they affirm. They have strayed away. It, it's a, like a mirror here to the end, to the closing. But evidently these snakes would not die easily. Because Paul warns again in his subsequent letter in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, but avoid worldly and empty chatter. For it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. In his duty of guarding the gospel, Timothy is directed to avoid Literally, turn away from these enemies of the truth and power of God's word. Do any of these descendants of these empty babblers still exist today? Yes, they do. 
They include word of faith preachers promising material blessing in response to faith giving. Translated money. That's what they're talking. There are churches today affirming LGBTQ sin, affirming it, giving it leadership, and the right for the freedom to murder preborn children from their very liberal pulpits. It is coming. It is being spoken. There are teachers who intellectualize and complicate biblical truths beyond what Scripture says, proclaiming an array of assumptions and impressive sounding conclusions derived from the philosophies of non-biblical authors. But that is where their strength is. And it is rampant and it is growing. So here is the consequence for empty babbling. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the truth. 1 Timothy 1, as I read earlier, says, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some have strayed and turned aside to idle talk. They strayed in chapter 1, they strayed here. To stray means to miss the mark, to deviate from truth. They are apostate. And then Paul signs off with the blessing of grace be with you. Amen. It is the requirement for avoiding empty babblers. Timothy will need the unmatched power of this great grace of the living God. Why? Because as he wrote in 2 Corinthians 10, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In conclusion, turn with me to four scripture passages for final warning and assignment, and I will just read these. Matthew 6, verse 19 through 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Hear these words, brothers, sisters. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Then turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Excuse me, Luke, yeah, Luke chapter 12, verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O oh, you of little faith. And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God. And all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then in closing, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 3.
And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the omniscient God, you know the hearts of each one of us in here. Lord, draw our hearts to truth and obedience. Lord, you have blessed us so abundantly. And many have given abundantly. But Father, I, I, I see these scriptures and I see these commands and I see the promises that you offer. Lord, why would I hold back at any moment and trade earthly and certain riches for treasures laid up by you for me in heaven. Lord, help us to see things as you see them, as they really are, as your word tells us. Give us obedient hearts. And Lord, I pray from all of this that Christ will be exalted, that the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ will go forth throughout this city, throughout this country, as you display your Spirit's work through us as your tools, as ambassadors for Christ, as though God himself were pleading through us, be reconciled to God. Lord, for those who, this morning, this makes no sense and, and have no idea who you are, I pray that you would grant them a new heart and you would convict them of sin. Lord, so that they can find this gracious and generous Father. Lord, please call them. Please show them mercy. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these brothers and sisters and their examples to me and their love among each other. I pray that you would lead us nearer to you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.